Welcome to the Paul Poit Poker Podcast. My name is Lee Davey. I am going to be your host for the next, I think, around 75 minutes. Uh, today, my guest is Gary Van Warmerdam. Uh, Gary is the creator of www.pathwaytohappiness.com. It's an interactive website with lessons for changing beliefs uh, that drive negative thoughts, emotions, and behaviors. In 1994, due to Gary's own unhappiness with work and emotional drama in his life and his relationships, Gary became motivated to learn how his beliefs affected his emotions and his decision making. And he studied extensively with uh, Dr. Miguel, Don Miguel Ruiz. If anybody's heard or read his books, actually, The Four Agreements and Master of Love, etc., they'll realize what an absolute amazing. Um, mentor uh, Don Miguel Ruiz is so Gary's very very fortunate to get to work with him uh, and during his work he realized that with the proper approach he could take greater control over his mind basically and his emotions and his belief system and the key he he learned uh, from working with Don was uh, unlocking his unconscious beliefs that were running his mind and his emotions and, and with that he could then reclaim power over his mind and with practice he developed the freedom to choose peace and happiness that he was seeking Educated and experienced as an engineer, Gary brings a common sense approach to changing beliefs, emotions, mindfulness, and living in greater happiness. Uh, since 2001, Gary's been teaching and leading retreats and coaching individual clients so they can live happier lives. And his methods are not limited to a particular philosophy or approach, but are based on careful observation and getting practical results. Um, I actually found Gary by reading his book, Mindworks, which I think is absolutely fantastic and i've interviewed him before he's currently in costa rica and uh, during this interview we talk about how belief systems work uh, we talk about the effect that societal conditioning has on our belief systems we talk about the difference between our uh, in our true self and the archetypes that we have inside our mind that kind of run havoc and control things and we also cover here, you know, the current COVID-19 pandemic and uh, listen to Gary talking about what he deems now the current fear virus. Uh, I think listening to Gary and learning about Gary's work is super important as a poker player because, you know, we can become technically amazing and proficient at this game. But to a large degree, that technical ability and our application of it is really dictated by it in our emotional state. And our emotions are very, very heavily linked to our belief system. So understanding how these belief systems are formulated and how we can actually change them to our benefit, I think is a real added plus to anybody looking to improve their poker game. And also, let's not forget that the, and I say this every single time we do one of these interviews, is your performance on the table uh, could very well be affected by your interactions and your you know, relations of the felt. So understanding again um, how your archetypes within your mind are, you know, really causing you negative and positive energy outside away from the tables and, and putting that right. And there's a moment where, you know, Gary actually talks about, you know, how important it was for him to learn to take full self-responsibility for himself. You know, I, I'm not going to complain about anything. Uh, Gary said, I'm not going to blame anyone. Uh, imagine living that life in your life and then taking that to the poker table. Um, how 
great would you be if you could combine that with technical understanding so i hope you enjoy uh, our conversation if you've got any questions whatsoever uh please uh, send them uh, to me at lee david poker at gmail.com or you can uh, and yeah and i'll pass them on to gary for you okay so without further ado i'll shut the hell up and leave you in the capable hands of gary van warmerdam welcome gary van warmerdam to the paul poire podcast how's life you're looking very chill there I'm very good. Thank you. Thank you, Lee. Very nice to be here with you. Let's dive straight into it because, uh, you know, the, the work that you do is, uh, is incredible. I would have given everybody an insight in, into who you are at the top of the program uh, with an intro. Um, and it's fascinating what you do. I, I find it fascinating anyway. I'm sure poker players will as well. Let's start out. What is a belief and how does a belief differ from a worldview or is it the same thing? Um, I think we, we take an idea of a thought and we say, well, that's a belief. You believe that thought or you don't. To me, a belief is much bigger, more encompassing, much more involved. Uh, and it's very often invisible and, and much more powerful. When I work with people to change their beliefs, they don't even see them to begin with. Okay. So, uh, so let's, let's say someone tells a joke and person A responds with laughter and person B responds with being offended. Now, you notice the response is kind of instantaneous. And person A would say, well, that was a funny joke. That's why they were laughing. And person B would say, well, that's an offensive joke. That's why they were laughing. They would look to the joke to explain their response. But if the joke is creating the, the experience, well, wouldn't everybody have the same experience? What's happening is each mind is interpreting the meaning of that joke. And they're understanding it their own way. And out of the interpretation and meaning comes their response. So one person laughs, one person gets offended. So the part you don't see is the individual interpretation and meaning that people are applying to this joke that is creating their reaction. And that happens in what I call the belief system. And so it's complete with a worldview, there's all sorts of meanings and interpretations that may be unconscious in there and generally produces a lot of emotion. So I work with a lot of people who wanna change, usually our emotionally driven behaviors and I go looking into the belief system, which is what is this invisible thing, <laughs> interpretation and meaning inside of us that produces emotions and behaviors. Mm. And that's what I call the belief system. So that's, so that's uh, similar in, in poker then. So, you know, obviously every, every hand is going to be different because the external environmental circumstances are going to be different, but at the same mm. time, um, lots of hands and the way a hand plays out is going to be the same a million times over for a poker player. So what you're saying is uh, somebody could go all in uh, with pocket deuces and lose to pocket aces um, and someone else can go all in and lose with pocket deuces, pocket aces, but their reactions will be different. And that, that tells you that it's not the cards, it's not the deck, it's not the game, it's how you're interpreting what's happening or, or the, the, the action is being filtered through your already pre-programmed belief system. Your responses is being run through this pre-programmed belief system. What does it mean to, to lose a hand? 
Hmm. Maybe you believed you were going to win, get surprised. Oh, you made a bad read. What's your response to that? What's the interpretation? Is it like, oh, okay, I learned something valuable there? Or is it, oh, I'm so stupid. That was such a big mistake. Hmm. And then what you often have is that just reaction is the stimulus for the next layer of beliefs. Oh, I'm so stupid. Oh, and everybody saw me made that mistake. Now they probably all see me as stupid and now we feel judged. And now we feel like even more emotion. Okay. And so, and, and that can create another layer, another part of the story, another part of the story. So we wind ourselves into, because here's where belief systems go. After we generate the emotion, it's like, oh, here's a fear of what people think of me. Now, things start to happen in the brain and the nervous system. This loss of status, this fear activates a different part of the brain. We shift our brain waves out of maybe from a flow state to beta brain waves. Our amygdala fires up in kind of this fight or flight state. Uh, that may be related to experiences in our past where we felt rejected and hurt, ostracized from a community, kind of biological survival mechanisms of not fitting in socially. Those associated connections in our nervous system, now our fear system fires in our body and our heart rate goes up and adrenaline goes up, cortisol is in, and now our body's got a chemical reaction going on it takes a little longer to wind down from than just say having a thought and an emotion. So it's, it's not just the belief, it's the emotional response, it's the nervous system response and the bodily function response that comes with that interpretation. Oh, well, yeah, I made a mistake. Okay, that's good to know. I can learn from that versus, oh, I screwed up. Everybody sees me. My status is lost, whatever. My, my money's down and now it plays into survival instincts about money into our nervous system. So that's, that's the spectrum of what's happening. Belief at a far range. I work with clients that go into panic attacks mm. because they are so looped into a narrative story of something terrible happening. Okay. Which, which, I mean, we'll touch on it in a little bit, but we're recording this during the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. So that a lot of that will be going on right now. Uh, yeah. I want to go right back to the beginning. I've got a three-year-old daughter downstairs. Apologies to listeners if you hear her screaming and shouting at some point, but I, I, during the, we're all on lockdown, so there's nothing we can do about it. I have a question for you. Me, I have a set of belief systems, and my wife has a set of belief systems. In your research, in your experience, or just your point of view, is it possible that your belief systems or parts of them are passed on genetically? Or are they always created and built as your children kind of, you know, go through life and gets, uh, you know, through societal conditioning and mentorship and stuff like that? <coughs> Otherwise, I feel healthy. So, I to try to <laughs> right. so our, our belief systems passed down genetically, yes. Uh, and, and it's not so much in the belief system, but our survival instincts, what we're programmed through uh, science called epigenetics. And for people who say, they study this in the Holocaust, their sons and daughters uh, have this type of fear 
sense of survival, it's heightened, uh, where their bodies function differently. Anybody who suffered through hardship, their children growing up in that time or, or afterwards, those cells are wired for a certain level of nervous system state, fight or flight survival instinct. And our children and even grandchildren are kind of pre-programmed to operate in that survival, fight or flight, hunker down for survival type way. So it's through epigenetics, its ancestors have a part of that. Uh, and then there's part of our makeup that is just, what is our, I call it temperament. Hmm. What is our, our, our authentic state? And if you study personality types, uh, there's, there's attributes of creativeness and openness and conscientiousness that, that are just like, this is, this is part of our makeup. I, I had a child psychologist come to an event once and I was like, well, what are you doing here? You know? And she's like, well, I realized that I had to throw out all my schooling because she was trying to get her son's behavior to change just by programming with kind of punishment rewards. Mm. And it was like, well, his behavior is like, keeps going this direction. This is what he's inclined to do. She's at the dog park and she's looking around the breeds of dogs. And she's like, some are just really affectionate. Some are guard dogs. Some want to chase the ball all the time. You know, and she looks around and like, well, all these dogs have this inherent different temperament in breeds of dogs. And we as humans do too. Like what is our own makeup? Uh, that is our temperament. Cause some people are going to be, more introverts, some people extroverts. That's part of temperament. So, and then the third element is we get some of this program beliefs, what we were conditioned to be afraid of, what we got rewarded for, what we fear being punished about. So this programming conditioning is kind of where our belief system sits on top of our temperament, which sits on top of some ancestral epigenetics. Okay, so we, we come into this world already, you know, predetermined to behave in, 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 in a certain way, but then mom and dad get involved. I mean, you, you talk then, for example, about punishment and rewards, you know, uh, right now my, my daughter's here, she's like three and a half and she's really testy. So she's, she's a hitter. My, my 19 year old was never a hitter. She, she's a hitter. And, and then if she hits and screams, I'm kind of like my belief system and mm -hmm. my automatic way of behaving is to chastise and to, threaten and to punish not physically but in a way that will get it to control whereas my my wife and i are learning that 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 isn't going to work right <laughs> so so we need we need to get down and we need to say to her okay so you're feeling really hangry right now you want to hit someone that you know and allow her to express her feelings and her emotions etc but that wasn't the way that i was raised right so 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 we come into the world and you know, we're, we're touched by society, we're touched by uh, our parents. What is happening at that very young age internally as we're just going through life, you know, like in the toddler years, for example? It's tough for me to remember there, but our nervous system, what's going through life? That's a huge question. I can answer that perfectly. Um, let's let's back up a little bit about society and kind of like the evolution. Cause I can go to my parents and I wasn't raised that way other to like, Hey, you're feeling some anger and you're expressing it this way. And what would be a better way to express anger and being allowed to feel anger and talking about our emotions. It's like, this is new, you know, go back to when I grew up, 
those conversations didn't happen, I think, most of the time for people. Uh, our parents grew up, you know, it, if they had enough to eat and they had a roof over their head, you're good. You don't have anything to complain about. You shouldn't want anything more. Uh, but now we're like, we live in society where it's really so many people are out of poverty. They're out of survival. They have comfort. Their physical needs are met. And now they're moving up in the hierarchy of needs. Like, well, what do we want? Not just what do we, we have what we need. What do we want? And we want experiences. We want to be happy. We want fulfillment, which to people of the previous generation, like, what are you crazy? You're, you know, it's like, you have enough. Mm. You know, if you grew up through the depression or your parents grew, you know, that you have food, you have enough. Like, why do you want these other things? But now we have that. And so we're moving through this age where people are like, they are getting to explore their emotions. What's not just survival, what is happiness? What is fulfillment? How do we experience that? What does each individual need to do to experience? And one of it is, like for your daughter, how do we feel our emotions, both the pleasant ones, the joy and the anger, allow ourselves to feel them because this is something previous generations didn't do a lot of and express them in a healthy way. It's like, okay, I have anger. So much when we grow up, our emotion drives behavior. If we have anger, that goes right into the nervous system, into behavior. We express it physically. And it used to be, okay, if we had anger, okay, we were punished for it. We learned to fear punishing the punishment. We learned to fear the shame about it as a consequence. That's kind of the program of beliefs. And people get the beliefs like, well, I don't want to lose control of my anger. I don't know what will happen. Well, what will happen is you'll generally feel shame. Mm. Okay. That loss of control means I'm going to get punished and feel ashamed. So that's a program of beliefs. And now we repress anger. But since we, we don't know how to, it wasn't the anger that was the problem. It was the behavior that we acted out on physically or verbally when we were angry. So now we've got all this emotion repressed and don't know how to be in touch with it. So how do we be in touch with our emotion and separate out the behavior? Okay, I feel a lot of anger. I'm not going to act on it. Allowing a healthy emotional process but, and behaving in a healthy way. You know, that doesn't hurt anybody, doesn't express it inappropriately. Mm, yeah, it's like uh, when I get to fight my wife, like I very often I'll be like, look, you know, I, I'm angry right now. I want to be angry. I want to hurt you. I want to call. I, I just, let's just, just give me some time, you know, because that is what's going to happen where could that, that's me adjusting and, and rather than just, bleh, you know, and just going into a pre-programmed state. So I guess, um, if, if this cellular thing is happening before your child's even born, mm -hmm. um, then I, and you talked about epigenetics, I'm sure as well then that as you grow up, belief systems can change, right? Otherwise you, you wouldn't have a job. So, um, like, yeah, yeah. but before we, before we get to changing belief systems, how do we even, how do we even get to the state of awareness? Obviously listening to this podcast right now is one example of awareness because mm -hmm. someone might listen to this and go, Oh, I wonder what my belief systems are. But, but in general, um, how do we draw awareness to our belief systems? Is that mindfulness that we're talking about here? 
mindfulness can be a mechanism, but then mindfulness often approaches like, okay, just be present with what is uh, and return yourself to your breathing and just let the thoughts pass. What I do is more of a frontal thought, frontal assault is like, what is that thought and why is it there? Mm. You know, so, okay, so maybe we, 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 for poker, we play a bad hand. We go, oh, that was so stupid of me. And we have all the nervous system reaction, adrenaline, cortisol, or, you know, like, oh, okay, I'm going to bring myself to breathing again and come relax, kind of, oh, let that go. But that program of beliefs is still there. So that reaction is going to happen again. So my approach is what is down in that interpretation mechanism that's driving that narrative story of I am so stupid, I'm this, this is what's wrong with me, I'll never get this. What is that narrative story? And then very systematically digging into it and breaking it apart and having it fall apart. Because when you really dig into it, you dig in it with awareness, uh, you, you know, it's like, the story of Santa Claus falls apart too. There is no Santa Claus. And all these things that we often believe about ourselves, they fall apart too. So we've all changed beliefs. <laughs> we just are often surprised or, or at times and we haven't done it consciously. But there are, what I teach is a very systematic way to go about stepping outside that narrative story, looking at the different parts, you know, letting go of the emotion, letting go of the concept, letting go of the identity. I am this person. And this identity self has to be separated out too. Like, well, that's the idea of myself in that narrative story. It's not me. And so that's, that's part of a mindfulness process. But the rest of it is, is pretty passive in a mindfulness approach. I get really aggressive with it. Is it, is it possible to... Is it possible to note down all your beliefs or is it just, are they just too vast or, or do we have a series of core beliefs? Does everybody like have a series of core beliefs that we can discover and look at it and go, okay, that one doesn't serve me. Let's get rid of that. That one does. That's great. Like, is it a way of managing this like process wise? I don't think I'm understanding your question as a way to right. manage. So, what are you trying to manage? So after I, after I read mind works, I was, which is your great book, by the way. Um, what I was thinking to myself was, okay, let's get ahead of the game, Lee. So let's let's not wait for a let's not wait for a disaster to happen and then track that back to a belief and try to fix it because now you've just hurt everybody. Let's get ahead of the game and be preventative and find out what your beliefs are that are about to mousetrap people. Right? What are they? Like, okay. So so are you going to get to a point where it's like thousands of these things and you're journaling forever, or? Are there a few core beliefs that we all have that just kind of like affect everything? Okay. So uh, when you start looking at it and you like look at the number of thoughts in your head that go off automatically, you could say, look like those are the leaves on a tree. And, and if you go a little further in, you start looking at the branches on a tree. You're looking at the emotions that are drive them. And underneath that is beliefs and, and underneath that, like the, the core trunks of the tree, the first three branches, those are core beliefs, right? So if you start looking like, well, I got to pull these, each leaf off the tree, like, well, I'll never finish. Like the new season will start with leaves before I finish, right? Yeah. But you can get to the core beliefs, you wither it down. You can knock off whole branches. You can pull out the whole root system. Okay. So there is an end to the game, although in the beginning it often doesn't look that way. We're often looking at it from a victim point of view paradigm. 
and we don't see that it's possible. In that victim paradigm, we're often feeling overwhelmed or hopeless or not knowing where to start because we don't, we don't know the system, we don't know the process, we haven't developed the skills. But once you develop the skills and the system, you start, you start often on small ones. You get small wins. You're like, oh, okay, I got enough tools. I can cut off these small branches. And then you can like, oh, okay, that'll work. You build up confidence. You're like, okay, I can cut off these bigger branches. And then, you know, you start finding these common threads and it comes down to common beliefs that are very typical through society at the core uh, that are these false sense of self. And often it's, it's, I'm not good enough. I'm a failure. I'm abandoned. I'm alone. Those are the painful ones that we've kind of built these layers of evidence and other narratives on top of, you know, of then maybe people don't like me. So this is the, the, when you start applying skills, you can get to the bigger ones and, and release all kind of the emotion and the paradigms that then change how you feel about yourself. Your whole sense of self changes and how you look at the world and how you relate to other people is completely different because you feel like you're, you're a different person. You're not carrying around these heavy feelings or self judgments. It seems like your belief systems, although they're highly personal to each one of us, it feels like, it's all connected to society. So like when you were saying then, the core, some of the core ones are, I'm not good enough, uh, I'm a failure, I'm lonely, et cetera. They're all related to connection in some way, aren't they? Like how, how important is the, how, how, talk a little bit about the link here between belief systems and status and, and, and tribal, like right now we're all stuck in a house. And biologic, <laughs> biologically, we all want to connect apparently. Um, how is that related to belief systems? Well, in belief systems, I see there's, there's very common themes. There's these archetype themes. There's archetype narratives in our society and different societies have different narratives. So one in the, in the US is about rugged individualism, being a success. And, and we think of our heroes, who are our heroes? You know, these are the, these are the war heroes. These are the movies. Uh, these are the people who've made a lot of money. So this is our ideal. This is what success is. And then we have what a failure is and a loser. Okay. And, you know, one gets the money, one is broke. One gets the girl, one is alone. Okay. One is, you know, whether it's education and, and gets respect and is given the commencement speech and somebody else is like locked out. You know, this is who's respected. Okay. And so in society, we look around, whether it's the movies we watch, uh, how we grew up on the school ground, who gets rewarded with the A's and who struggles. You know, so that's common in, in, in a culture. Okay. If we go to another culture, we'll find out that the status may be different. It may be dependent on what, how much you're studying in their religious books. Mm. Okay. If we go back to our U U.S. culture, a hundred years ago, these were not the hero archetypes. Okay. The hero archetype was somebody who was quiet, calmed, respectful, and that listened. You didn't want to stand out and be boisterous and say, look at me, haven't I, you know, what I've accomplished. That was considered arrogant and conceited. Uh, and that was frowned upon. Okay. So the, but 
when we have this as the standard and oh, by the way, if you achieve this success, you will then be happy. That's the emotion that's associated with this. And you believe that a lot of people go achieve the success goals they wanted. And what's funny is they still feel miserable. Mm. So they achieve their goals, but they still have this belief system that says, I'm not good enough. I'm alone. Nobody likes me. And they still feel inadequate. And they're like, now it's really confusing. It's like, I thought I was going to supposed to feel good here, but I still feel not good enough. And yet I've got the evidence externally that I should feel fine about myself. And so this is a confusion and someone then either raises the bar. This is how I want to feel better. I have to go achieve more. I need a, you know, a private jet instead of flight first class, whatever it is. I need a billion dollars instead of a million dollars. But that's, they haven't addressed the internal meaning interpretation system that made them laugh at a joke or feel offended. That's automatic. So you have to in, look internally and say, what are the narrative stories I'm telling about myself? So that's the, that's the part that needs to change internally for someone's then internal emotional state to change. That, uh, that, uh, that example you just gave there happens in poker actually, where people believe that, well, if I win a, if I win a million or, and uh, 10 million and 20 million, or I get to the mid stakes and I get to the highest stakes and I get to the elite stakes, then that's going to make me feel really, really fantastic. And then they get there and they, they still, they feel just as lonely and isolated as they did before. And I've been reading, um, drive by who wrote, who wrote, is it Pinker? I can't remember, but I'm reading drive at the moment. And he talks a lot about extrinsic and intrinsic motivation. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting. I'm going to write an article about this, but I'm going to speak to some poker players to help me with it, first of all. Because if you, if you look at poker, there's a massive, massive element of extrinsic motivation around it in the form of money. Um, but there's also an intrinsic motivation because mm -hmm. it's competition, it's drive, you win, your status goes up, etc. Et so there's a bit of both. But if you take away the money, who's, there's no professional poker player. And very often, poker players won't want to play. They want to go do something else, because so so I I wonder if that this this is within poker anyway, this drive mm -hmm. to get to the top, whether this extrinsic intrinsic kind of uh, motivational system is is having an effect there. Well, it's certainly having an effect. Uh, I think internally. Oh. Well, there's, there's two kinds of motivations. There is the external ego satisfaction. Oh, look at me. I made it. I got this money. Everybody see me. I am this image of success. And the belief is I'll feel good about myself. But there's also this internal potential that we may be aware of. of what are we trying to do? We're trying to feel good. And whether somebody gets to a high level status and they go, oh, this, this isn't what I'm here for. It's like, okay, that's met. Now there's something else I'm here for. Now they have the means with the money, they can pursue that. Hmm. You know, one of the things that I, as I was training, studying, I was working through my belief system, my ego, I saw my mentor, wrote a best-selling book, his name's Miguel Ruiz. 
I saw him just work with people. I thought what he was doing was just brilliant. And I'm like, I want to be that guy. Yeah. <laughs> I was yeah. like, oh, look, people look at me like, wow, then I'll be, I'll be something. Right. And I could feel as I was doing it, I was like, okay, I want to go teach this work. I could feel a part of me go, that would be a ego external rewards. What do people think of me? What status am I? How am I perceived by others? That would feel good, but I'm like, that's not going to feel internally good. That's kind of as a response to this narrative story, which is kind of made up. But at the same time, I'm like, I have a passion for this. This has changed my life. It's changed my perception of the world. If it can do for other people, just a percentage of what it's done for me. Like I feel so blessed to be able to teach it and share it and see people change their lives. I had both motivations, just this internal fulfilling sense and gratitude. And I had both. Mm. And as I grew, I'm like, I know this one's here and I know part of my motivation is corrupt. I want external uh, feedback in a narrative story from my ego. But I also know I'm on the right path. So I'm doing this because I love this. This is meaningful to me. This is, this is be satisfying if I can do this for my life or however much I do it. So we can have both. We can have an ego motivation and we can have an intrinsic kind of authentic motivation. You can play with this as well, can't you? Because there's a poker player called Dan Smith right now. And he's got together with another couple of poker players, Stephen Chidwick and Jungle Man, Daniel Cates, and an anonymous donor. And they, they're actually pledging $250,000 between them to help um, the disadvantaged in Las Vegas who are suffering through COVID-19 right now. So single mothers who can't buy food or whatever. So... And this is quite often, I mean, Dan, Dan has raised uh, over 5 million, I think, for mm. other causes. So what Dan's done is he's gone through the ranks. He's got that intrinsic motivation of, I love, I love poker, I love the game, I love the game. He's got that passion, he's got that perseverance to keep going, it, and the intrinsic is there. But he's also got the extrinsic as well, well, the money's good because I like fine dining, et cetera, et cetera. But then he gets right to the top, and, he's, and, and the passion starts to dissolve. So now he changes his extrinsic motivation by saying, well, instead of getting a load of money and buying myself a lot of flash stuff, I'll give it away to a lot of people who really need my help. Now he's balanced the in intrinsic in it. Now he's got his intrinsic back because now he's got a passion to make the money because the extrinsic motivation is different. Yes. Now yes. we can do that in all areas of life, I guess, not just poker. We just need to think outside the box of it, I guess. I don't think it's that far outside the box. I think there's really good examples. Like you mentioned, Bill Gates is an example. Mm. massively successful you know he's he's doing his best to give as much money away in the best way possible for the most people okay works really hard at it so that's what he spends his full time doing and that's intrinsically motivating to him mm. so uh there's there's a lot of people that are you know clients who are doctors nurses they're like their intrinsic passion is to help people we're seeing that we're seeing that right now aren't we okay. all the world you know? yeah but also i see with people like doctors is like there's a very high status of their ego and how they're seen and what they act like and it's one of the one of the we talked a little bit about what's culturally in this narrative what is success one of the narratives that's very archetypical is that self-judgment 
Mm. You know, trying to achieve this level of success and feeling criticized by that inner critic. Oh, I'm not doing enough. I'm not enough. You know, it's like, how do you break that belief system? And so, and then, and then we get into this other thing. It's like, well, okay, I've done a lot. You healthcare work, you're helping a lot of people, you're saving lives. Then you tell the narrative ego story of, oh, look at me, I did this today, or, you know. And then you're like, oh, there's my ego. Um, that's a terrible thing for me to think. Yeah. And so we're doing good. Maybe we allow ourselves to feel it, but then that inner critic says, oh, you're a shameful person for thinking that of yourself. It's like, no, allow yourself to feel good, doing good for people. I'm like, I'm like, I'm, I'm like that. Whenever I do anything good, uh-huh. I have an internal dialogue. It's normally my wife because, you know, I spend more time with anyone else. I have an internal dialogue. It says, go and tell Liza now the good that you've done, followed by another internal dialogue that says, no, don't do that. That, what, why are you, why are you, it's called questioning. Why are you doing that? Uh, and, and then I have another dialogue that says, fuck it, do it anyway. <laughs> right? This, this, yeah. is why, this is why I came off social media because I was posting on social media and then I had the internal dialogue. What, why did you just post a picture of your kid on social media? And the answer was, my kid's beautiful and I want everyone to see them. My kid's beautiful, which is, well, why are you doing that? And then it's all the way back to you being in, in, in a playground and the kids saying, oh, you, you chink, you're weird, you're different, you know? It's like proving mm. something, you know? You're, you're overcoming something from your childhood that... I think that so. Oh, chink? Okay, or their story. Yeah. I'm half Chinese. These, and, yeah, yeah these, are, these are kind of the narrative stories of, of multiple belief systems within us, within us that start piling on top of each other. One, two, three. It's like, okay, we have one. And like I said earlier, then we have a reaction to that one. And then we have a reaction to that one. Because when you start looking at the belief system, you see our mind is this host of ideas. And they're kind of alive and they're competing and they're pushing against each other. And sometimes they cascade and waterfall and it spiral downward. Sometimes they spiral upward. Uh, sometimes they go back and forth and you feel opposing one's intention. So those things that we feel internally, there's just different beliefs challenging each other. Okay. And, and yeah, there's one, one triggers the next. Well, it's that for me, it feels like story is really important here. So the power of your story. So for example, if I get into a conflict situation with somebody, um, and this is really relevant here, you know, I was interviewing uh, Brian Rass the other day, a poker player, and he was telling me that when he won, he won the poker players championship twice, but one of the times he, he won it, he said he was having a big raging row in the breaks with his wife. Now, luckily he went on to win the competition, but if you're having a, raging row with somebody whilst you're trying to get into a flow state and trying to like focus on the game it's very difficult because you get these these emotions right so for me like when i'm fighting with somebody i get into i get into such a state and there's so many stories and narratives going on that i Mm -hmm. forget what we're even arguing about and we end up arguing about like 10 or 20 different things and but because i'm aware of it i'm like hang on a minute this is happening again so it, when you work with people, do you, do you somehow like lessen the impact of the story or do you just get people to be aware of story? How does story interact with all what's going on underneath the hood? 
Oh, my, my goal is to completely for them to be free of it. Right. And, and some people in the beginning are like, well, I heard you can't, you can't really change this. The best you can do to manage it is like, if someone's telling you all you can do to manage it, they're only working with people who've only been able to manage it. Okay. Other people have gotten results of being completely free of it. Uh, and so the, my goal is first, you have to separate out your consciousness so you can see what your mind is doing. You know, if you start to see, oh, that's the inner critic. It's not me saying that about myself. Okay. That's a programmed response. Like, I know that if this happens, my inner critic's going to say this. Mm. Like, if you, you know what it's programmed to say, you can start to trust that it's like just kind of this recording thing. It's not you. Right. And then you can start to see, well, when the inner critic does that, well, there's this other part of me that responds this way. It feels ashamed. Oh, I've done something wrong. So now you start to see that your mind's engaged in like these multiple narratives. One's the critic says, oh, you've done something terrible. Like as if it's all knowing. Mm. And then this other part is like, oh, I screwed up. As if it doesn't know anything, it's always screwing things up. Like, well, you could just watch these two narratives. One's sounding as if it's an all-knowing authority. And this other part of us seems like it's a complete screw up. So if you start to really step outside, you're like, well, if one's a complete screw up, it can't be all knowing. And yet one part feels it's all knowing. It's like, these are separate parts. They aren't us. They're just programs of the mind programmed to act, behave, feel, think those ways. And moving out into that observer state, separating yourself out from what's the narrative story and what part of your mind is saying it. Is it the inner critic and the victim in this case? Okay. And then is it the spiritual ego and says, you should be past that. You know, you shouldn't be judging yourself anymore. And now you've got a spiritual victim. It's like, oh yeah, I'm not that spiritual because I still have self-judgment of that character. You know, so here's the cascading. So once you step outside, like now you can start changing it. The mistake people make is they're like, well, I want it to go away. But they're in the midst of a, Inner, a, a version of the inner critic says, I shouldn't have this. I should be past this. I don't want this anymore. And they're feeling victimized by the very thing they want to change. Well, from that victimized state, you can't make a change in it. Mm. Or, the, okay. or, the, or, the, or the judge, which is like, this is never going to yeah. work. Yeah. That, those, if you're in the identity of kind of these narrators, the inner critic or the victim, for instance, uh, you're not going to make long-term change. It's not going to be permanent. So it's a, it's a system that I teach of like, okay, we're going to move outside these stories. We're going to step outside, watch them from the outside, step outside the emotion. And then from this kind of the director of this show of these actors on stage, so to speak, you know, it's like, well, okay, what's this one doing? What's this one doing? What's the beliefs behind it? Are they true or not? And we can start to dismantle them. But now you're approaching it as say the director of this theater of characters and voices in your head. Okay, you can do something and you can rewrite the script from that position. Uh, but within the characters, you're only going to be sucked up by their programs and their automated responses. And I guess earlier on when I asked the question, could we, could we create a log of all our beliefs? And you gave the metaphor of the tree and the leaves. Um, yes. I guess with archetypes, we can create a list. 
because yeah. there, there's not going to be hundreds of them. There will be likely 10 to 20 maybe core main archetypes that come up, maybe less. Yes, less. There'll be yeah. less. Okay. Go I've on. got a question on that that, then that uh, I think about Wait. a lot and I don't know. the. Oh, go on. Sorry, did you? Yeah, I was saying, yes, you can make the list of beliefs and that's what I have people do. And they, mm. and they kind of show up and you're like, what was after a while you start to, to see them in, in woven in between the narrations of your thoughts. Mm. You're like, well, that, what is that doing there? Like, well, that's not true. Yeah. And I, and I guess once you get used to, well, I ask you, let me, let me park that thought up. I just had and, and get back to what I was going to ask you. If, if I take this observer standpoint, mm-hmm. the biggest one for me is childishly. I think that relates probably to princess. One of your, six core archetypes is princess i think right yes. so so princess is like childishly i think and um i go into childishly quite a lot like i, I i'm i'm literally childishly quite a lot and i and i can see from an observer that childishly exists what what i have difficulty with is who am i without childishly like if i deal with childishly and, and get rid of him and then i deal with a judge and get rid of him and i deal like who am i like like where where's the where's the border here like i am i often worry that i would who who i would be um i i struggle with the concept of self and me could you say in your book for example it's really important that you understand that these beliefs are not you they're they're your archetypes that have been created through societal conditioning Etc. 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 It's not you. So then I ask myself, well, who am I? A fair and very typical thought as a response: If I'm not these subpersonalities, who am I? Then, when you ask that question, let's go a level, level deeper. What's the feeling? Fear. Okay. Okay, so you go a little deeper. Where do you feel that fear? In my gut. Okay, is that the part that's asking the question, who am I? If I'd let go of all this, who am I? I'm not sure. Okay, so keep your eyes closed. Where's the part that's asking if I let go of all those characters, who am I? Where is that part? My gut. Okay. Where are you? In my head. Okay. You're perceiving what's in your gut. Are you still going to be there if that fear is not there? What is your sense of self that's perceiving this fear? My emotions are always in my gut. My self is always in my head. Okay. And so I, my, my self will still be there if my, my, my self will still be there, yeah. Yeah. If you're in your head, how are you be able to perceive what's in your gut? Do you have sensors? Do you have awareness of what's in your gut? Yeah, I just, I just feel. Like right now I yeah. feel a tightness. Yeah, yeah. So maybe go a little step further, put your attention on what is it that's you that's perceiving the tightness? What's, what's the you that's 
able to sense down in your gut or sense down in your toes? I'm not sure I understand the question. Yeah, okay, that's fine because I'm pointing to something as there's a presence of yourself that's able to perceive, that's able to say to inhale, put attention on the fear and take a relaxing breath. And you're able to do something with that fear. Instead of trying to ask, answer its question, well, who am I then? You go, it's okay. You don't need to know who you are. I'm still here. And the fear we can let go of. And maybe you're like, well, who am I that's able to let go of this fear? Who am I that's watching this question? And even when this question's not here, you'll still be here. When the fear is not here, you'll still be here. Your sense of presence and as you tune into yourself as that sense of presence, independent of fear, independent of question, independent of this part of the mind asking a question, you as a sense of presence, independent from all that, still here. When you identify with that, you're not bothered trying to answer that question. You know you're still here. I'm actually starting to think that it wasn't me that was asking the question. It was actually one of my archetypes that was asking the question because they don't want to leave. Okay. There so you go. That's, I mean, resistant. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I know yeah. that as resistance. Yeah. Yeah. So typically when there's fear, you're looking at part of the ego. Mm. And it's part of the, that ego's, what I'll call the belief system structure. Mm. It's connected was, with fear. Okay. That was really helpful. Yeah. So knowing that you're like, knowing and being aware of yourself is separate from that is the beginning of then allowing it to let go. And what you'll find out is from that freedom of being present as yourself, you're still going to express yourself with inspiration and playfulness and you're still going to want things, mm. but it's going to be in tune with your temperament instead of this program beliefs, say a fear. Okay. It's like, I still want ice cream. <laughs> okay. And I still have a passion for work. You know, it used to be I had to do work to prove I was good enough so that I'd get the reward and people would respect me and then I'd feel good about myself. And now it's like, no, there's something intrinsically satisfying. So I still have this drive for something of quality, to produce something of quality. But that's often a lot of fears if we let go of this belief. And say we let go of this inner critic. I talk to clients like, okay, well, if I let go of this inner critic, I won't do anything. I'll sit around and be a blob because all of their motivation has become of this criticism i want to avoid the criticism i want to like try and be good enough so they're like a fear of not doing enough and uh, hopefully getting some kind of accolade and reward and respect or sense of accomplishment it's like it's it's driven by this inner critic I'm like, as if that's the only source of motivation possible what's about passion and inspiration and and these intrinsic sense of fulfillment like your high achieving poker players and bill gates like he's not giving his way to prove anything he's like there's something intrinsically within us that motivates us to do good and excel. Yeah. I think this identity thing is uh, like really important. You know, I, my sister, my sister is living with my, with my mom at the moment. She, uh, she has her mental health issues, you know, sometimes and mm -hmm. sometimes when they say sometimes, well, she has mental health issues. And, um, 
I don't, I don't deal with it very well. You know, I, I deal with it a lot better as I'm getting more mature and wiser and I speak to people like you more, but back in the beginning, I dealt with it. Fear took over like my, my, uh, my fear took over and, and, and I would say to her, well, why don't you, why don't you just go and get help? Why, why aren't you doing anything about it? You know? And, and I would often wonder whether or not within one of her archetype, like the victim is thinking, well, if I do something about it and I fix myself, then who will I be? Like right now, because I'm, I've got mental health issues, everybody takes care of me. They, they, I, I, I feel like I'm, people can't notice me and, and, and see me. And, and then what's going to happen if I do the work and, and get rid of it? And it's like this change, like, you know, like, it's like almost like human beings really are terrified of change. And, and when I think about your work, it's, it's change, 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 change. You know, it's like you've got to really get over that hump, right? Feel the fear and do it anyway type of thing. Yes, you feel the fear. Like you just, like you just felt, you know. But there are ways to move past the fear. Mm. And, and so it's not like, oh, I'm just going to go let go of this inner critic or I'm going to just let go of this narrative story. Oh, the identity of ourselves, because the biggest belief systems we have are typically what we believe about ourselves. Oh, I can't do this. This won't work for me. Oh, I've got to be great. I've got to be a success. I've got to be this person, but that person. I, 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 me, me, me. I, you know, it's like all the eyes of these thoughts are within narrative stories. Like this. there's a version of ourselves in those pronouns. And so, so the, the stepping out of those versions of ourselves, the ideas of ourselves is, is some of the hardest stuff. And, and when you do, there is like what you just experienced that fear. And that's why you have to do this as a system. Like, what am I going to do with that fear when it shows up? Or what can I do as building a sense of self separate from these ideas of me first so that when the fear comes up, I go, well, that's a character fear. That's my belief system fear about change. Hmm. Already established. So then you can like, you know, when that fear shows up, you're like, oh, that's just a belief system, part of the mind reacting to changing this belief. Because here's one of the interesting things about belief systems is we've built many of these layers of structure, mostly to avoid pain. Okay. Some of it is, yes, I want to achieve this great level of success. And I'm driven to that. But often those people, when you see like driven to that level of success or, or any level of success, it's because we've experienced some kind of failure, some kind of rejection, and we want to avoid those pains. Uh, you know, we do. And, and I I remember in high school, you know, getting a bad grade in my, you know, math class. And I was like, God, that pissed me off. I'm going to do better, right? So I really go to work for the next, next term. And I'm like, okay. Well, I find out from the TA that the teacher intentionally lowered my grade to piss me off so I get motivated to go to work. Right. All right. She knew you then. Okay. So I was like, oh, he played me, but I thanked him because it worked. You know, mm. I was like, but we've had pains in our lives. Okay. Places where we felt rejected and hurt or hungry and, and this success or this idea of what will make us emotionally safe is embedded in our beliefs that are the solution to 
you know, in our belief system, this will make us feel better. This will avoid us feeling like a loser, a failure, not good enough. Mm-hmm. You know, procrastination is one of those mechanisms, oddly enough. One of the reasons that people put off doing things is because in their belief system is the narrative story. Often they don't see it. Uh, if I go do this, I will do it wrong. And I'll be judged and criticized for it. Or the inner critic will judge and criticize me for screwing it up. And that'll be emotionally painful. And so in order to emotional, to avoid the emotional pain of that outcome of self-criticism, I'm going to put it off. Okay. But that sets up this other belief system narrative. Oh, I'm going to put it off. I'm going to put it off. But now the inner critic is judging us for putting it off. So it's painful to put off, which is an avoidance of, you know, I'm of this other pain about doing it wrong. Mm. So we oftentimes our beliefs and setups like two protective strategies, both kind of triggering the other inner critic, one for putting it off, protecting us from getting it wrong. And one of uh, procrastinating as a protection from getting, sorry, one of procrastination to protect us from getting it wrong. And one of, I better go do it to protect us from self-judgment for procrastination. So this is where our belief system just ties in knots. So we feel like in our mind, we're going to lose either way, but these are both made up narratives that can be changed. Mm, I just, I just had a case of that actually. I, I wrote a, I, after I read your book, Mindworks, I decided to write a, like a six series poker uh, series about it, you know, um, covering some of your main points. And I was procrastinating writing it because it was episode, you know, it was episodes. So I, I could procrastinate. And I realized that the reason I was procrastinating was I was afraid. I was afraid that I was putting knowledge out there that I wasn't quite comfortable with understanding completely. And, and I was worried that people were going to, uh, be critical of it and to bash it and that added like a malaise but at the same time because I'm like I'm a bit of a driver of myself I was like no fuck it you got to do it you got to do it so then I did it and then yesterday so I did the six articles like 10,000 words and then yesterday I, I said to, I said to the guy take it down take it take it down I'm going to do it again I'm not happy with it so so there I think is the procrastination, like you say, linked to a belief system that people are going to look at it and think it's crap, but also developing some sort of mechanism to deal with procrastination, which is no, you know, I've got a 90 minute slot right now and I'm going to write this fucking thing no matter what. <laughs> but then it's like, oh, come on, Lee, it's no good. Take it down. You can do it better than that, you know? So, um, really interesting. I, I, I we're coming up to, we're coming up to the hour now, but I don't know how much more time you've got because I wanted to ask you two more things. Do you have time? If not, I can only ask Yes, you. I have time. You have time. Yes, okay. Time. So the first thing I want to ask you is uh, Don Miguel Cruz. I mean, he's a bit of a hero of mine, you know? Like I, when I got divorced, um, which was like nearly 10 years ago now, yeah. I, my belief system and my belief systems around the divorce was um, the judge like, you know, the judge and the victim were like going, going, going at it for me. They were, they were batting. They were at the, they were at the. I don't even know what you call it in America, where you, where you're batting, oh, beating, beating you I, up. No, no. Well, no, beating my wife up. Okay. They were, they, they, they were, it was all her fault. 
Okay, very big fault. narrative, emotional stories. Yeah, she left me. Victim she left me. She kicked me out, and I would tell everybody these stories, you know, to kind of like, you know. And then I read Dominic Guerrero's one of his. I've read all of his books. I can't remember which one hit me on a on a trip to Vienna. I read the book just going over to Vienna from cover to cover, and he was talking about me. Uh, I realized that I was trying to change her, and that trying to change somebody is very disrespectful. And the most respectful thing to do, if you he said, don't, if you don't, if you want a dog, don't buy a cat. He said, and I was like, oh, I'm, I'm trying to turn this cat into a dog or whatever. And he said, the most respectful thing is to let them go because you, you, you are hurting them. And, um, I was in floods of tears on his flight to Vienna reading his book. He's, he's an amazing guy. Um, I know it's very difficult to break it all down, but what were the, what were the few things that really life changing things that you learned from him that changed your life? The, the the book you're referring to is called the mastery of love it's right the master of love the life changing things mm. <laughs> i could i could go through lists there's 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 i asked this question to, i asked this, i asked this question to poker players like it's like what were the what were the milestones in your life the real one or two real major turning points i mean it could have been just picking up the book i'm I'll, I'll take one of them. Hmm. The sense of responsibility I have for myself, the sense of responsibility I have for my emotions and my life. Don't blame anybody and don't complain. You know, when you have that sense of responsibility, that I learned from him and it took iterations. Uh, I, I now practice and I'm saying it's perfection, but I practice living in a way of don't blame anybody for anything and don't complain. Uh, because if, if like I described like, how am I responding to the joke? Am I creating the experience of being offended? Am I creating anger? Am I creating victimization from the joke? That's somebody else's creation. And that's what they find funny. It's, you know, and I'm responsible for my response. And if my response, if I'm unhappy in my experience, that's my creation. If I'm sad, if I'm angry, that's my creation. And I live in a sense of like, I'm experiencing my expression all day. You know, my words coming out to you, that's my creation. Responsible for everyone and I experience them. If I put anger in them, I experience anger. If I put love and, and gratitude in them, I experience gratitude. So, I'm living in a world of where I'm creating my experience. Not because it's coming to me, but because I'm generating the expression of it. It used to be that experience was often just a bunch of program beliefs responses. And I was experiencing my program belief responses from my judge and victim characters, my subpersonalities. And I was experiencing their fears and I was experiencing their ego. Okay. I was experiencing my own personal dream of all the narrative stories in my head, all the false sense of myself. 
And I was like, and when I realized that, I was like, this is painful. Mm. <laughs> but if I've got all the power to create and feel this, what if I turn that power to create towards expressing love and gratitude and compassion and joy? That responsibility for how I feel powered me to like, I want to change these program beliefs because I don't want to be using my power in their narratives. I just got, um, I just got very emotional then listening to you. Cause when you, um, when you said that there was that external part of you that wanted to be like Don Miguel Ruiz, <laughs> I just moved into that external part of me that says, I want to be like Gary. So I guess to reframe that, and to not jump into my external gratification. I want to, I want to feel like that. Like I, I am completely and utterly living. I am di being dictated by at the moment by my belief systems and I need to take more, more um, self responsibility because I, I imagine in your world, although you're not conflict free and conflict does happen, it's probably nowhere near like the amount of conflict that I get myself into because of my stories and narratives. Mm. And, and if, and if I drop into one, it's, it's usually not that deep and not that long. Right. And you recognize it very, very quickly. Uh, yeah. I recognize yeah. it very quickly. I'm like, Oh, I'm starting to go there. No, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I'm like, Oh, there's a narrative story. Like, what is that? I think I'm going to get over to www.pathwaytohappiness.com after we finish talking, Gary. Uh, and instead of downloading your free course, actually do it this time. <laughs> You know, <laughs> I'm the world's master at downloading free courses and they just sit on my hard drive, you know, sit on your hard drive. even, even if you're not doing the lessons, you're not like, okay, doing the practices, listen, mm. listen, because stuff will trickle into your consciousness and then there'll be a little piece and a little piece and a little piece and it'll start to build. Yeah, I've always thought about the law of attraction in that kind of way, you know, because um, I remember when I stopped drinking. And I, and I started to practice in the area of the law of attraction and my rational brain wouldn't allow me to think that if I closed my eyes and wish for a Porsche, Porsche would suddenly turn up on my doorstep. Right. So mm -hmm. the only way that I could like kind of figure it out was that my sub, if I give my subconscious a goal and, and tell it what I want, which is maybe I, I want to meet a beautiful woman and live in a different country. Yeah. then my subconscious will alert myself to stimuli or experiences that I otherwise would never have seen because I wouldn't have been thinking about them. So I have a great belief actually that, yeah, that, that, that if I tell my subconscious what to do, and where to go for it, it will, it'll go figure it out. I think that's why I like Joe Dispenza's um, visualization mm -hmm. meditations in his book, breaking the habit of being yourself type of thing. Cause you can just get it to work. Absolutely. And if you take that and you believe it works that way, what about all the beliefs that are programmed in there already? What about all the ideas it already has? Wouldn't we want to take some of those out mm. that are destructive, that create drama, self-rejection, the inner critic, feel like a failure, not good enough. I got to do this to feel good about myself. Well, especially when you realize, I mean, you, you cover this in your book, uh, is once you remove, you know, 
let's think about some of these false and limiting beliefs as like a cancer, I guess. So once you remove that cancer, the energy that that was sucking up, you can now use that energy in other areas of growth in your life, but you never had that energy before because you were just too, like my gut. And from thinking about my gut, for example, again, going back there, how it's always tight and it's always kind of like, that cannot be good for me healthy wise. But if I can like remove that, then all of a sudden you feel lighter and you feel more expanse and everything feels like, you know, like more to my natural state, I guess. So, mm. yeah. Yeah. So I want to just finish off by asking you some questions about what's going on at the moment with the coronavirus. Um, mm. I haven't listened to your podcast yet, which is why I'm asking the question, but you are, your latest podcast episode is on the fear virus. So, um, you know, everybody's dealing with this thing in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm finding it really, really difficult to navigate uh, conflicts with people having so many different belief systems around this thing. And, and this is interesting because COVID-19 or a pandemic for every single person on this planet, no, not every, yeah, a pandemic is a new thing for us all. So like, it's not like we have a belief system around COVID-19, but it's you obviously broke, you broke up there. The pandemic oh, for every single person right. on the so, planet. Yeah. What I'm thinking is COVID-19 is new for everybody. Like this experience yes. is new for everybody. So yes. it's a, so it's a new, so new beliefs would be forming. But I actually, after speaking to you, actually what's happening, we, we, it's reactivating beliefs that are already within us, right? And accentuating yes. it. Yes, so, Most, mostly it's activation of existing belief programs. Right, so what's going on at the moment? And, and, deter, and, and talk about the fear virus. Well, a lot of things are going on with it. I mean, there's a 7 billion people plus have, having seven different billion interpretations of it. Hmm. Um, that's so so where would i start oh one of the, we'll talk about one of the ways the belief systems reacting to this uh you have a uh belief system is is kind of your mental map for the world right if you if you kind of think like in your mind like how am i going to get to this destination 100 miles away and you kind of well i'll go drive my car and i'll think to stop i'll get gas and i'll stop for lunch and it's like you have a mental map of how you get there uh this is for a mental map of how i'm going to make money this is a mental map of like how my relationship is going to go and this is what we believe the future will be so but now what's happened is we've and, and for most days, most time, we do the same thing, get the same results. But now that the map is not the world. Okay. So here's the map, but here's the world. Most of the uh, things in life that we've done regularly, it's like, okay, our belief about how the world is matches. It's congruent and things line up and things are going as expected. Okay. So now we have COVID-19 and the world's changed. Okay, in a few months, now we're not going to work unless you're a central person. Uh, what you're going to do during your day is different. Your income is different. Your relationship now has new dynamics. If you're spending all this time together, it's like that might be new. And for some people, that might be great. That might be uncomfortable for others, right? But a lot of times, what's happened is the belief system in the mind is now having a lot of reactions to, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what to do. How is this going to work? 
we don't feel we have the right map. Okay. And that makes us very uneasy. We don't know what's going to happen in our internal world. And because we don't have a real accurate description of, hey, here's how the virus is going to progress. This is when you're going to go back to work. This is what the economy is going to do. We don't have a map of the future. Our mind's trying to say, well, is this going to happen? Is that going to happen? It's trying to project possible maps onto reality, right? And then we get news and something else has changed and something else is changing. And so there's this very uncomfortable feeling because our belief systems are failing. Our mind is unable to prescribe a map and that gives us a very unsafe feeling. Okay. Now, pandemics have been around for thousands of years. <laughs> so this has always been reality. It just hasn't been part of our experience in our lifetime. So we don't know how to map to it. If you're an epidemiologist, you're a medical doctor, you studied these things, you're like, yeah, this is what happens. This is what we do. You have a good map of how to fight a virus and what it takes in social distancing and you, okay. But if, uh, but for a lot of people that scrambling about like, now I don't know what to do. I don't know how things are going to go. I don't know. And so, and so one of the things I think about is like, it feels like the world is ending for some people. What's the world? Their internal world of their belief system isn't working. Yeah. So their inner world is empty. The map they had doesn't work. Okay. And so it's, the world's not ending, but so many beliefs are collapsing about what normal is. Uh, and their identity is wired into their beliefs. It feels like, they are collapsing. They don't know who they are. They don't know where they fit in. Uh, but these are just belief systems in the mind that are changing. And then we're having a reaction to, uh, the mind's having a reaction to the not knowing part. And then in that fear, then people go to fear. It's like, I'm going to grab something so I feel safer. So they grab toilet paper, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we've gone down from the idea, loss of identity, emotion, nervous system, and now behavior to compensate, I want something to feel safe. And so they're getting extra food and they're doing too much of something as a compensation. So that's one of the kinds of dynamics that I see. Well, that's uh, really helpful, Gary. I've had a wonderful time talking to you. I feel different somehow. Uh, <laughs> I want to go away and meditate now or walk through a field and, and play with dandelions, although we probably won't do that. Um, it's been really useful. How could people find, find, uh, find you, Gary, and get hold of you, what you're up to? You can find me at pathwaytohappiness.com. Uh, you can challenge your belief systems work both through my self-mastery course that's on there. And along with that, uh, there's work to work through their emotions and change and inventory these branches and, and trunks of trees to get rid of them all together. And I'm going to be doing shortly a, a kind of guided online coaching with that course to take people through all the kinds of resistances that you just found. You know, what is that fear of letting go of this? Mm -hmm. I'm going to walk them through the resistance in a kind of an online video coaching process along with the course. And you can also find my work to my book, Mindworks. Yep. It's brilliant. I've read it. Really love it. It's going to be, um, 
you know, central, central function in my life. So Gary, thank you very much. I hope that you just made a few poker players, a few more bucks, and you've uh, got them thinking more about uh, those intrinsic motivations. And we'll, we'll catch you again when we have you one as a guest in the future, I assume. Thank you very much, Lee. Pleasure talking with you.